Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. The battle lines are drawn and I'm calling reserves. I'm calling up all my soldiers and shady super coders. It's time to bring the message down directly to the voters. Bitcoin can't be stopped. Yo, the network is a cockroach. If you drop a bomb, dog, stop and watch the blocks grow. If you try to outlaw, you'll need to ban math and words. Unconstitutional. Peter Van Falkenberg. The money is a movement. We're ready here to do this. We're building for the future, but I bet you people knew this. The use ain't hard to find. When the stars align, yo, the galaxy appears into view of all divine. I'm different when I dip and see me chipping with equipping, flipping magic when I'm ripping like my name was Scotty Pippen. Yo, I'm gifted because I'm lifted. I always try to elevate. Today is when we fight so that tomorrow we can celebrate. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, Peter Van Valkenburg, Director of Research at Coin Center, is our guest. We're going to get into it deep on the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2023, sponsored by Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Roger Marshall, and 19 other co-sponsors in the Senate, and why it is a major threat to the cryptocurrency industry. We'll also talk with Peter about tornado cash, financial privacy, and a host of other topics. It's a great interview. We'll also check in with our good friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, big day-to-day Fed day today that really moved markets, and we'll get into it with him. Before we get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. I've been very loud about the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act, and I want to continue to be. Unlike other bills that have tried to impose additional compliance requirements or regulation on the cryptocurrency industry, which have mostly focused on intermediaries on an off-ramp centralized companies, you know, which is very reasonable in many respects. This bill goes directly at decentralized internet network participants, unhosted wallets, quote unquote, uh, miners, nodes. It is a direct attack on the decentralization and resilience of public blockchain networks. And I believe this type of fight, whether it culminates now Um, it will eventually come back. This is sort of the big fight to be had. And I encourage everyone to call their U.S. senators, go to senate.gov. There's a contact area there, which will give you the contact information for all of the U.S. senators and encourage them not to vote for this bill. Let's get right into the show. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, Bimnet, thank you for coming on Galaxy Brands. Thanks for having me. Wow, big day, Fed day. Unbelievable day. And Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Um, yep. And gosh, it is resulting in a – well, just get right into it. It, it was a big one. It, they made yes. news at this one. What did they say? Basically, uh, one, they kept rates un- unchanged. So they kept them, you know, 525 to 550 banned. Uh, two, in the statement, they acknowledged that growth was slowing more than expected, you know, versus the, the last meeting. Three, they updated their dot plot indicates that there are going to be 75 basis points of cuts uh, in 2024. Now that's the median across all of them the now? Median, the median uh, indicates a 75 BIP cut. Over, versus Over next year. Over next year versus the street side expectation was 50 for the dot plot. So they outdoved the street expectations. But market pricing was closer to 100 already. But that expanded because of the dovishness of, mm. of, of the Fed. Uh, and for, you know, you know, during the, the Q&A, basically, uh, Powell essentially acknowledged that they're done hiking and that, 
you know, they're not even going to wait till inflation gets to their target. They're going to, in advance of that, as they see things, you know, progressing and slowing, that they're going to be more proactive about cutting. And so it was a dovish message, right? It reinforced basically what was said by Waller, uh, you know, the, the other week, and the market took it insanely well. Dollars sold off pretty aggressively, you know, looking at euro, dollar, yen, all that stuff. Gold ripped, you know, through 2K. Crypto obviously reacted super well with Bitcoin having a, a plus 4% day, almost testing for 4,300, basically, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 points away from the year-to-date high. You know, Russell was up like 3, 3.5%. Dow Jones, you know, new all-time highs for the Dow. It is... Bang on, risk on for risk assets right wow. now. And, you know, if you think about it, we just went from 9% inflation, you know, a year and change ago to, you know, it looks like, you know, much more manageable levels of, of inflation. And like the three and, range, right? Yeah. Three and, level, yeah. I mean, we just printed like a, a, a month on month headline that was zero. But, you know, I personally disagree with the Fed and what they're doing right now. But in terms of what it actually does mean for markets, it means you're good to go to buy risk, at least for the next couple of weeks. And so, you know, that's kind of the camp I'm in. Um, the, count, the counter to all that is the services part of the economy is still super hot. If you look at like super core inflation from CPI, literally yesterday, right, it printed 3.9%, right? And so in the labor market, you're still talking about, 199,000 jobs uh, added last month, right? An unemployment rate at 3.6%. And a housing market that's still super tight like crazy because people don't really want to sell the, their homes. And so I I think the, the risk of reinflation is far greater than the, than the Fed um, is acknowledging. Um, at the same time, I understand that next year is an election year. And that, you know, if you have inflation coming in around 3% and your uh, Fed funds is set, you know, north of 5 you have very restrictive interest rate policy, right? Um, and there are cracks in the economy with respect to, you know, lower income tiers and some, you know, things in the labor market. But it's really not that bad. And also, I mean, I'm just like, who the hell is really going to be like, I mean, the stock market's back at all time highs. Crypto's ripping like crazy. Asset prices are, are coming back. And people are like, oh, yeah, that, that policy might be too restrictive. And we got to cut interest yeah, rates. Yeah, it, it is strange, too, because they've, you know, we've talked about this before, but Jay Powell has long said that Paul Volcker is a, a mentor, not a mentor, a, a icon for him. Yes. Paul Volcker dealt with this. They hiked because inflation went up. Then inflation started to cool. They started cutting. Then inflation came roaring back and they had to hike like up, almost up to 20 percent, right? That's what he doesn't want to happen, right? That, that's what happens if you look at the CPI and, yeah. the, and the Fed funds rate from like the 70s and 80s. That's that's what happened then. So it does seem like incredibly dovish from from them after he's been – they've been hammering us with higher for longer for no, so long. No, absolutely. And, and you know what? It's like – It's tinkering. It, it, they're tinkering. It they're, they're traders like the rest of us. They're, you know, reacting to the data, you know. However, I just think you just need a little bit more, like, big picture understanding of, like, where, where things are going. And, you know, if you're talking about fiscal policy in an election year, right, people are going to be just sending money in the mail system, basically. Right. And governments are going to be spending, you know, jobs will be added, et cetera. And that's inflationary, Right. Um, and then, you like, the other big thing, like, every Fed, I'm like, Bitcoin makes more, more and more sense. And, like, don't get me wrong, like, that partially because I'm very biased. 
uh, with respect to crypto. And, you know, I work at a crypto firm. I don't think firm, anyone would be bullish. surprised to know yeah. that you and Galaxy are long Bitcoin. I think. Correct. I right. think it's pretty well known. Fair enough. <laughs> right. But it's like, okay, like how did the curve react to the the, the, the interest rate decision today? It's steepened, right? Two's 30s, you know, two's 10s, et cetera. And that's because the front end went. But what you have to think about is the deficit stuff isn't going away. Right. That, those long-term bonds still have to get funded. I just saw And the that. Fed's still engaging in their balance sheet reduction. Yeah. Right? And what, do you think the deficit's not going to expand in an election year? And and so you're still dealing with a situation where the long-term fiscal viability of the U.S. and the, the, the ballooning interest payments, because we've raised interest rates so high and we've got to constantly refinance as, you know, bonds mature, right? Like, that's still a huge issue. Yeah. And, like— you know, easing rates in the front end helps, but like the Fed's telling you simultaneously that, and the market's telling you that it's okay to buy risk assets again, but that the long-term stuff is still shaky. And so I'm like, wait, Bitcoin is a risk asset in, in lots of ways. Mm -hmm. And it also is a good gauge for long-term, long you know, fiscal viability. Right. And so I just keep seeing this, this curve steepener trade and thinking Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And this, I'm not the first person I to be like— I see what you're pointing out, though. You're saying the, with the shaky long-term thing, that's telling you to look at something like Bitcoin. Correct. But with the short-term risk on, that's also telling you to look at something like Bitcoin. So Correct. Look. And so—but but, but again, that's like—you're talking to a, a very Bitcoin-biased person. But I, I, I literally—I mean, the, the fiscal stuff is just insane. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's part of the impetus for trying to lower—agreeing to lower or, or also easing pressure on the banking system, which yeah. itself has been rocked by the— the rates, right? There's those types of reasons maybe to push forward here. No, too. absolutely. And then the other thing I'd like to highlight, and which you brought up, you know, before this, uh, our convo was how wrong central bankers have been historically. Yeah. Everyone is pretty much awful at forecasting inflation. And so you've got these markets, whether it's the Bank of England, the RBA, uh, you know, the Fed, yep. right? Pick your central bank of choice. And the interest rate forward path looks like you know, pretty steep cuts that, yeah. that are getting baked in and more and more as, as you know, the, as, uh, as after they become more dovish, yeah. But at the same time, like, people are really bad at forecasting stuff. Right. And all the time, they, people get stuff wrong. And the magnitude of what's priced now, you're priced to perfection. Right. Right? Like, if you think long-run inflation is somewhere between 2 and 3%, terminal rates are now, like, 320-ish, right? And the Fed terminal dots are, like, 2 and 3 quarters, a little bit higher than that. And so you're basically priced to perfection in terms of the cut stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that, like, and, and you're, the Powell's telling you he's going to be more reactive than he, the f past uh, policymakers because, you know, yep. probably going to be looking at more of the high-frequency stuff, and he doesn't want to cut when inflation gets to 2%, but it's more like right before, like, seeing where, where stuff is going. And so— I'm just like yeah. So there could be more interest rate volatility. There has like. to be. There has to be. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, which by like, the way what, is it just well, that also contrasts with Bitcoin. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> which but is like, highly credible. Let's, let's all acknowledge what what the financial system is, right? It's uh, it's a game of musical chairs, right? It's all these assets are are inflated. The magnificent seven trading at insane multiples, right? The bond market now you know, nearly priced to, to, to perfection. Um, and you got crypto ripping like crazy, memes ripping like crazy. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if you had, you know, those, the, 
I can't name the single names, but like the the popular meme stocks do doing well right. again. Right. Um, and so it's just so much froth. And like, are we just not concerned about a reinflation? Like, am I going crazy here? <laughs> I don't know. We're gonna have to wait and see. I should point out that you that the Fed for really a long time has been sort of signaling that this uh, rate cuts would eventually come, right? And yeah. you were saying many months ago uh, that the Fed at, at prior looking at prior Fed speak, that they yeah. were effectively telling you to buy risk assets. And of course, you pointed out, I mean, the Dow Jones Industrial Average Index today at all-time highs today, yeah. right? No, I mean, Equities are basically at all-time highs. Yeah. And had a great year. Phenomenal had, year. And, I mean, and, and so, so did other crypto. risk assets. Yeah, yeah so. and it's crazy. I mean, if you T-read the, the Fed properly, basically, like you basically had to understand what Powell's response function was when the data first started slowing, like, or when, when and if data started slowing, how was he going to respond? And I thought, you know, earlier in the year, you got a sense that his response function is, oh, I'm going to normalize policy, you know, pretty aggressively. It was kind of my read he on really his doesn't response. Want, he doesn't want to stay higher for longer. He just doesn't. doesn't. He, but I think, I think the, yeah. more, like the data though, like, it may, it's it may require. Be yeah. I mean, you go out and this people are still spending money. Like, you know, it's the one boon, like, to, to this market and to the Fed um, that, you know, I think the market's probably not properly appreciating is gas prices. You know, we're talking about 10, 11 straight weeks of declines. It's like, crude, crude's at like sub $70 yeah. right now. Gasoline at the pump is sub $3 everywhere I look, basically. And that's, that's right? been a while since that was And true. that impacts your, your sentiment. Yeah, it that does. impacts where you think future inflation is going to be, mm -hmm. right? And what's an important factor for determining future inflation? Expectations of future inflation. Right. It says, wait a and second. So, Prices are coming down. Because oh. one of the only things that you go, if you go to the supermarket, maybe you look at yeah. the price, it's usually written like next to the item. But like, I don't, most people don't buy that many things where the price is literally in a big giant LED board flashing right at you. Like, correct. And a lot of that truly is uh, gas prices, gasoline at the pump. That is probably the main place where Americans see a, like an index on, on, on inflation. Yeah. yeah. And uh, gro grocery stores, et cetera. Right. And, you know, now that we're talking about inflation this way, I think it's always important to reiterate that inflation measures the rate of change of prices, not the absolute level. Right. And so all we're seeing is the rate of change of prices is now cooling. It's decelerating. It's decelerating. Right. But it's still Correct. going up. It's still going up. Yeah. Right. Although I've I've read some stuff on you know the the housing stuff is looks like it's going to start declining meaningfully yeah. in the figures at least because there's a, like a lead lag effect mm -hmm. and also just a lot more supply hitting the market. Um, but you know outside of that, like prices are not back to where they were like before we printed seven trillion dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and mailed out money to no, every single uh, person. <laughs> we've talked about this. They haven't really admitted policymakers, whether in the federal government or no, the they can't. federal bank. They haven't really told people that, like, guys, that's never going to happen. I don't even think Biden properly understands that inflation concept. Yeah, I'm not sure. So, um, Bimnet Abibi, my friend from Galaxy Trading, thanks for coming on Galaxy Brands, as always. Thank you for having me. Let's go now to our guest, Peter Van Valkenburg, Director of Research from Coin Center. Peter, thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brands. It's a pleasure, Alex. I'm excited to have Peter. I've been following Peter's work for a long time. Um, he has a phenomenal, I think, house testimony uh, a while ago explaining Bitcoin, one of the best explanations I've seen in about two minutes uh, that we'll link to in the show notes. But in general, Coin Center does great work across a range of policy uh, and legal topics for, that affect the cryptocurrency industry. 
But I this the reason the catalyst to have Peter on this week is the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2023, sponsored primarily by Senators Elizabeth Warren and Roger Marshall. Um, I'm very agitated about it, and I've been writing about it and tweeting about it and talking about it. But Peter and his team at Coin Center have covered the issues that are at play in this bill for years. Um, and so I want to get into it with him on that and then talk a little bit about Coin Center and stuff. But Peter, before we get into that, give us a little bit of your background. How did you find yourself director of research at the premier crypto think tank in Washington, D.C.? So I have a background as a lawyer. I went to NYU Law um, back in like 2012 to 2014 or 2011, 2014 and graduated, wanted to work in public policy because I didn't want to take on clients. So came to Washington, D.C. It wasn't long after that that Jerry Brito, our executive director at Coin Center, found me and said, hey, I saw that you wrote a little bit about Bitcoin from a legal perspective. I'm starting a Bitcoin think tank. This is, you know, 2014. So this is early days, relatively speaking. Do you want to be the director of research? And I said, that's a completely insane job pitch. And I would be completely insane not to do it. And so I've been lucky to, to be at Coin Center since, since we started. And I've been as you mentioned, lucky to testify before Congress about these technologies. The uh, the hearing I think you're talking about with the with the really good, like, short explanation of Bitcoin. Yeah, the two-minute clip that people love. Was that Senate or House? I guess Senate. I couldn't recall. That was actually the Senate, and it was Senate banking. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren actually asked questions in that hearing. And she wasn't hostile at the time. She just wanted to know that securities laws would apply to ICOs because it was around the time of the big ICO boom. And I think my answer was, yeah, if people are expecting profits from an issuer and they're trusting the issuer, then, yeah, the securities laws are probably the right laws to apply in that context. And then I clarified that, but there are coins like Bitcoin, for example, that have no trusted issuer and therefore securities laws are inappropriate to apply. And she seemed satisfied with that answer at the time. Since then, she's obviously become much more aggressive towards the technology writ large, let alone just ICOs or, or the obvious scams out there. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, she has been. She, uh, her own statement was that she's raising a quote anti crypto army. It's really surprising to me that what this says about her her donor base or what she thinks about her constituents, um, because I it the only when I look at the polling data on sentiment of on cryptocurrencies, right? Like we just published a report about this last week about the great wealth transfer and, and how older people view crypto and, and blockchain much less favorably than younger people. It, it, she's courting an, an older voter base with this, with this um, something like 63% of millennials and youngers view crypto favorably versus like 20% of baby boomers. So like it, because it, it, which is typically a strange, I guess, I mean, you, maybe we could be cynical about who gets out and votes, right? Like, I mean, Young people have been notoriously bad at voting. It's unfortunate. I, this is why I try and stick to legal analysis and to just application of rule of law and constitutional principles, because I'm terrible at politics. I don't understand how it works. And I try to avoid getting into people's heads. So I, I can't speculate as to why she's taken this approach. It is stunning to see someone with her track record just like uniformly agreeing with Jamie Dimon in a hearing. It is stunning. I mean, when I... We, you and I, I think are, we're, you know, we're of similar age and Occupy Wall Street was sort of right around like my college informative adult, early adult years. And to see that movement effectively, you know, what was born out of that movement, one of the main things was the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which she was the first head of. 
but to now have her directly aligning with the banks. To be clear, this digital – we'll talk about the, the her bill, but the Bank Policy Institute is quoted directly in the press release. It's it's a bill that she's written with the banks, basically. It's just – it's weird. You know, I always joke too, like if you had – if you know, when I was a kid, if you'd grown up and you'd say, well, like – what political party do most of Wall Street belong to? Like the the obvious answer you would just say would probably be Republican. But now you've got the sort of the the far – the leader of the left-wing financial policy allying with Jamie Dimon, the, the CEO of America's largest bank. There's always strange bedfellows in crypto, but they're usually like nice alliance stories like, you know, where we can get a Democrat or Republican to agree on something for a change. And it's like, oh, yeah, innovation. But there's also strange bedfellows on the other side, which – which is becoming more and more of a trend. Yeah. So let, let's go into this bill in particular, the, the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act. I call it DAML. I don't know if that's an acronym they're actually promulgating. I, I'll probably call it the Warren Marshall Bill throughout this conversation because that's what we started calling it internally. And, just... and they're the two primary co-sponsors. Um, so I'll just set this up really quickly, but if you could tell us what's in this bill. And, you know, the, the gist is that unlike other things we've seen, say, in comprehensive regulatory proposals from like, whether it's like uh, Stabenow Bozeman or Lummis Gillibrand or the stablecoin stuff or whatever, which mostly deal with how businesses operate in the cryptocurrency industry. This bill seeks to impose bank-like regulations on network participants, specifically digital asset wallet providers and unhosted wallets, uh, which is just wallets and self-custody wallets. Um, and But even miners and validators, and they even specify in the text of the bill, MEV like searchers and stuff. So it's we're now not talking about businesses, but we're talking about software, right? And the users of software. To me, that's what's so troubling. Um, am I forgetting? Am I, what am I missing? What else is in there? Like, what's your just overall explanation of this bill? No, I mean, that we can go into finer details, but 100% that's the main issue here is that this is not a bill that's, that's proposing reasonable regulation of trusted intermediaries in the crypto space. This is a bill that wants to register and find financial reporting coming from, you know, people who are running a node in their house, people who are operating a self-hosted wallet, which is just a wallet, like you said, because they want to hold their own Bitcoin. And that is a that is a big change. And so, you know, the first version of this bill was introduced actually December of last year. Um, and it, it hasn't changed much since then. She's gotten a couple more co-sponsors um, for the reintroduction now. And what, at the time, we wrote a blog post and we said, look, we've been around waiting for this, um, but most of the work we've done to date in 2022, from 2014 to, from 2014 to 2022, was sort of helping politicians understand the unintended consequences of their laws. Like, oh, there's, there's a bit license. They want to regulate like the custodial exchanges in New York, but they've accidentally drafted the language to be so broad that they might sweep in node operators or things like that. And so we have to go in and have a briefing and say, this is how these networks work. There are trusted participants on these networks who probably should be the target of regulation. And then there are people who are just running software for their own purposes, who it would be constitutionally inappropriate to target for regulation. And also who, you know, it just would be anti-innovation and you wouldn't achieve the consumer protection goals that you have in mind. But this bill, and we said this in the blog post in 2022, is the first time where it's not a mistake. It's not, oops, we drafted the law too broad. We're covering a bunch of people who are mostly engaged in free speech-like activities or personal financial uh, transactions. There's a very deliberate attempt here to cover those persons with regulations. The other thing I want to point out is because this was introduced last year originally, 
it was it was I think it was very deliberately introduced right in the wake of the FTX collapse. There was this sort of like great troubled period in crypto history, which was deplorable and sad from Three Arrows Capital to uh, Terra Luna to FTX. Ultimately, we had these massive like implosions of trusted corporations in the crypto space and people losing real money. And the response to that from a regulatory standpoint is we need new rules to protect people. Right. And that's actually a reasonable response. I would quibble with it and I would say actually all the laws that we already had in place just needed to be enforced. And that's why we see, you know, SBF being brought to trial and why we see people actually, you know, like bearing the the, the costs of their bad actions and, and having consequences for those bad actions. But this bill came around that period where, you know, Congress was just ready to finally step in and be the adults and fix this messy sector. And I can see why that would gain some sympathy, especially from the larger public who thinks like, well, it just looks like the Wild West out there and people are losing their money. But the thing about the Warren Marshall bill is it was brought up in the in the context of the FTX collapse and people losing money. It does nothing to stop people from losing their money. It doesn't attempt to create prudential standards to make sure that custodians have the, the assets that they're promising their customers they have. It doesn't have risk calibrated standards for like minimum capitalization or customer disclosures. It's not an investor protection bill at all. This is, as you mentioned, bank-like financial regulation, but it has nothing to do with prudential, like safety and soundness regulation. There's none of that in this bill. The only aspect of bank regulation this creates for these entities in crypto is financial surveillance. It says if you are operating a node, if you are mining, if you are you know, holding your own Bitcoin in a wallet, a self-hosted wallet, to use their terminology, then you need to know your customer, which is kind of ridiculous in the self-hosted wallet context, obviously, or in the mining context, because none of these people have customers. And the implication is you need to know every name, physical address, social security number of every person behind every transaction you deal with. So if you were a miner putting these transactions into blocks, you could be found on the wrong side of this law and prosecuted if this was to become law for not knowing the name and physical address of all the people who wanted transactions in your block. It's absolutely uh, unenforceable, nonsensical if you actually understand how the technology works. But again, I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's intentional. They don't want it to be enforceable or make sense with respect to the technology. They basically are outlawing the technology by mandating a type of surveillance activity that makes no sense for the entities that would be obligated to do that surveillance. Yeah, I think the the case, when I think of wallets and miners slash validators, right, so, or we'll call them like block builders, right, in general, like the wallets themselves, many of them, Bitcoin Core itself is a wallet. It's open source free technology, right? It's like you can't ban it without banning like a web browser, right? Like it's, it's, you can go and download this. There is no centralized entity that functionally could comply with even knowing who's downloading it, right? Like it's on GitHub. You can compile it from source. It's free software. It's, it's available globally. And by the way, there's many of those, right? I mean, all the, I mean, the, all the core clients themselves have a wallet and they're all, they're all free. They're all FOSS basically. So that one, that one is that one harms directly individual people, right? Who may be now what unable to download a wallet. They're gonna, and it forces everybody into uh, centralized. Like theoretically, if you want to comply with this, you'd have to only use hosted wallets, 
and they theoretically want that because they can address those centralized hosted companies, right? They can just, if they're mad at you, like if you're a Canadian trucker, or yes, if you're a foreign terrorist, they can just call up your custodian and be like, give me his Bitcoin. <laughs> I, I think that's right, but it's almost still giving too much credit uh, because if that was the goal, they'd just outlaw these things. This notion that we'll, we'll just apply KYC regulation to these entities, even though that makes no sense, is a sort of almost bad faith way of banning those activities in the US, or it just manifestly misunderstands those activities, or it's a way of selling a ban as not a ban. Oh, well, we're just applying rules to these entities. But the right way to think about the way they're applying these rules would be is if you said that everybody who operates an internet server needs to know the name and physical address of every packet that travels over their server, like the internet would break, it would stop working. So Exactly. And then, so thinking about the miners and validators, to your point, like a wallet developer, if they're real, if they're not an open source decentralized thing on GitHub, but they somehow make a wallet, maybe they could comply. I mean, maybe possible, right? Theoretically. But the miners really are structurally incapable of, of performing this function, like, right? So it would effectively ban mining and validating in the United States, in my opinion, right? Like there's no, there is truly no way to actually do this, right? You can't, and, and even if somebody tried, I envision like you may have like a private white-listed pool emerge, mining or validating pool, but that would effectively bifurcate the entire network itself. You'd end up having like U.S. government approved blocks and then like, which probably wouldn't actually even happen. But if if somebody in a mining business or a validator business decided to try to stay and comply, that's probably what they'd have to do. And that would also be bad for the network too. So it's it's it's. But in my view, most of this, to your point, is structurally incapable of of being done by these entities they're targeting. And I mean, th there there'd be entities who would try to comply. There'd be entities who would leave, and so these activities would just go overseas and continue carry on overseas. The the outcome is not what would you what you would want either either from a pro innovation standpoint because obviously it's phenomenally bad for innovation because it basically outlaws a very vibrant area of permissionless technologies and internet technologies. But it's also not what you would want from a law enforcement or anti-terrorism policy either. Like if you actually talk to folks at the FBI or even at FinCEN, the, the division of treasury that actually enforces Bank Secrecy Act law, and this is this amends the Bank Secrecy Act um, for those who aren't um, following along with the laws at home. If you talk to these folks who have their like feet on the ground and are doing investigations, the useful information they get comes from custodial exchanges. And where they have gaps is not a bunch of people making self-hosted wallet transfers or, or miners not reporting. The information they would get from miners would be garbage. It would be nonsensical. It wouldn't aid in investigations. The place where they have gaps is non-compliant foreign exchanges. The the Garantexes of the world, the Russian-based or, or lots you know, of. stateless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we're slowly chipping away at that. What's the answer to that problem is more more money for enforcement, more money for resources to go after non-compliant custodial exchanges. It's not to go on a wild goose chase where we're going to chase down every person who's sharing open source software on the Internet and running a wallet with it. You know, that, that, that is a tremendous waste of terrorist uh, anti-terrorism resources and anti-money laundering resources. Yeah, and it creates a giant data. Uh, there's privacy reasons why it's problematic. I mean, I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But, you know, I want to point out that when she, uh, Senator Warren, asked questions at the Senate banking hearing, I guess, last week, now I think last Wednesday, um, and Jamie Dimon, in a much quoted uh, quote, he said, you know, I've never been a fan of crypto. If I was the government, I would ban it. What she had, the question she had asked was, shouldn't crypto firms uh, have to do the same compliance as banks? And they were all like, yeah, they should. 
oh, sure, the banks love that, right? There's a competition thing here going on. By the way, the banks basically have sponsored this bill. Um, the Bank Policy Institute is quoted directly in the press release, as well as the Massachusetts Bankers Association and some various others, right? So there's a there's an anti-competitiveness nature to the bill, in my opinion, as well. There's transparent air- irony. Well, but crypto firms, as the senator's question asked, they do already comply. Galaxy is a crypto firm. We we work with FinCEN. We do KYC on all of our counterparties and LPs, and we they file SARS. They 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 right conform to the as as money transmission as money transmitters or MSBs as they're mostly money services businesses as crypto firms today. And and so does Coinbase. Right, exactly. All the crypto firms in the U.S. do. <laughs> So finance just paid $4 billion in fines for failing to do this kind of compliance. Exactly. So that can be enforced. And this is one of the things that really does suggest that this bill itself is sort of a de facto backdoor ban because, and it's intended to be that because the way she's talking about it publicly makes it sound like businesses are who the bill will target. But actually this targets decentralized internet network participants. Yeah individuals, and in many cases, just individuals who want to protect their own privacy for perfectly legitimate reasons, like ordinary Americans who would just like to hold their own crypto in their own wallet and just want to be left alone. Right. This gets to another thing. So like when this bill first dropped last year, it was also not long after the the, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there was widespread talk of like, is Russia using crypto to evade the more aggressive sanctions that we're now imposing to, to sort of punish them for that, that, that violent aggression against a smaller nation? And the answer roundly, and I remember Jonathan Levin from Chainalysis testifying in front of Elizabeth Warren, when Elizabeth Warren kept, Senator Warren kept asking Johnny Levin, like, is our Russian oligarchs using crypto to move money out of Russia? He kept saying no in his very like great Basso continuo voice. He said, no, no, there's simply not enough volume and liquidity to move the amount of money that Russian oligarchs would like to move through crypto. And we don't see it. And we're chain analysis. If anyone sees it, we would see it. And she just didn't accept the answer. And this bill was, uh, in addition to, I think, a response in some ways to FTX, like, oh, crypto looks bad now. So now's the time to come and target it, basically, even though this has nothing to do with investor protection. It also was a was an opportune moment because of the Russian invasion. And I hate to I hate to, you know, be so blunt about this, but it, it, it remains an opportune moment because of the tragedy we've seen in the Middle East with respect to the Palestinian attack on Israel. You, you know, this all gets linked to crypto, even though time and time again, we see headlines, crypto used to launder money to go to Hamas, crypto used by Russian oligarchs. And then when investigation actually happens, we find out the amount of money as far as the, the percentage that these bad actors are actually moving through crypto is a tiny de minimis amount of the money that they get from the traditional banking system, from just moving physical cash over borders. Like crypto is not a big part of this anti-terrorism um, geopolitical story, but it keeps coming up because the geopolitics becomes a rationale, I think, to do what you already wanted to do, which is just to crush an industry for, that for some reason you didn't like. Maybe it's because you're trying to you know, help banks compete with a new rival. Maybe it's ideological. Again, I, I can't speculate as to exactly what the motives are, but it, it just seems opportunistic. And the other thing we wrote about in our post was, look, this is unconstitutional in our US system. If you're actually going to stop people from being able to operate and share open source software, and as you said, all this node software, all this core wallet client software, minor software is speech, then if you're going to stop people from being able to distribute that, you're putting a prior restraint on speech. 
And you have a Fourth Amendment problem here. The Fourth Amendment says, you know, before the government comes and collects a bunch of private information about me, they should get a warrant from a judge. It's not an unreasonable thing to require because it just stops prosecutorial abuse. It stops the investigator from saying, like, I don't like Peter. I'm going to go search his home now. He says, no, you know, first you have to go before a judge. And the judge will say, do you have a good reason to suspect Peter? And if they do, then they'll get the warrant, right? In the financial surveillance context, we don't have a a warrant protection when our records are kept by banks because of something called the third party doctrine, which we can get into if we have time or we can talk about offline or you can read stuff on Corn Center's website. But the fact of the matter is when you're not keeping your money at a bank, when you are keeping it on, say, a device you have in your home, like a hardware wallet or software wallet that you run on your personal computer, you still have the protection of a warrant. It's guaranteed by our Fourth Amendment and our Constitution. And so saying that because you're operating Bitcoin software in your home, you now need to report on the transactions that you're making and everyone else is making that touch your software um, or your miner or your node or your computer is just an anathema to our constitutional system. And this brings me back to the, you know, the Vladimir Putin, the Vladimir Putin rationale for this act in some regards. The Russian oligarchs are using crypto, so we need this law. No, America is the country it is and is different from Russia and is different from North Korea because of our constitution, because we trust our populace to have a certain amount of freedom and the ability to do a certain amount of financial transactions as well as other speech and communications activities without having to first seek permission from the government. And so if this is really about national security, you have to ask, what are we protecting? We're protecting what it is to be American. And so if in the name of national security, we destroy what it is to be American, we ruin ourselves. That's a great point, Peter. Um, let's talk a little bit about Tornado Cash, um, which you guys were also, have also been very involved in since we're on the topic of privacy and, and sort of finding – so when Tornado Cash, just for quick background for the audience, I think most of our audience probably knows, but they were added by – FinCEN to, by, by OFAC to the SDN list, which is the specially designated foreign nationals list. It's the list of sanctioned entities by the United States, financial sanctions. Um, and when you're added that to that list, it prohibits Americans from doing any financial business with you, right? And they actually had added the smart contract addresses themselves for the decentralized application, Tornado Cash, which is a privacy-enhancing application uh, often referred to, it's different than this, there are many, but referred to broadly as what, anonymizing services by the government, right? And that includes things like mixers and tumblers and whatnot. Um, so it was sanctioned because it had some, they, they believed or have evidence that, and I don't know that they don't, I mean, I'm just saying they alleged that the North, North Korea, North Korean hackers, the Lazarus Group, et cetera, had uh, laundered funds through Tornado Cash. Um, and I wrote at the time that, you know, well, they probably did. I mean, there's no, I'm not denying that criminals yeah. have used the tool. There's a whole bunch here I want to unpack with you and, and ask you to explain this to us. But one of the things I pointed out, and it goes to your prior point, I wrote about this. We we wrote a good report about the Tornado Cash thing that was quite principled. And I pointed out, you know, obfuscating the origin of funds is not illegal. That's privacy. It's totally allowed. It's not even money laundering. It's only money laundering if you obfuscate the origin of funds and the origin of funds was a crime. And you know that it's a crime, right? So if you – like there's nothing that stops me. Let's say – in fact, there's um, – who is it? Is it Giannis, the basketball player? I think he said that he keeps his money in like 50 different U.S. banks, like in tiny little pieces because he's from Greece that has a bank. He has a history of this being a problem. And 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 if you wanted to, you could just go and put little bits of money all over the world just because you want to make it hard to find your money. That's actually totally allowed as long as you're not 
laundering or obfuscating the origin of crimes that of money that derives from crime. So just pointing out, like privacy is totally legal. <laughs> um, but you guys, you guys got involved in Tornado Cash. In, in fact, I bring this up just because sometimes people think that this is a partisan issue these days, and that makes me sad because it's not always like you get strange bedfellow, bedfellows on both sides. One of the most clear sort of defenses of people's people's right to structure their financial transactions as long as they're not actually knowingly trying to evade the law is a great opinion from Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, uh, when when she was still on the court. And and she just she just makes it clear, like, we, we can't start criminalizing the mere fact that somebody made a bunch of small transactions. Like, there cannot be culpability there. There can be culpability only if you have knowledge and intent to actually further some illegal act or move some proceeds of some illegal act. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and to your point on on privacy and, and partisanship, right, there was the trucker movement, uh, which, you know, whatever the politics of it aside, they, the, the government of Canada took people's money. I, I read stories about uh, uh, like a grandmother who had donated money to this movement and her bank accounts were, were seized and <laughs> frozen, right? Um, but then you have in the U.S. take like the, the recent, the ruling on abortion at the Supreme Court and you've now got people that are being put in jail in certain states if they seek one or if they even like request a quote for one, right? Like, and again, so that there's plenty of reasons on all sides, I think, for, for, of, of politics in the U.S. for people to support privacy. I, especially because we used to make almost all of our financial transactions in the U.S. peer-to-peer. Like most day-to-day -day transactions would have been done using cash. The handful of transactions that would go through a bank and therefore be subject to a financial surveillance regime would have been like big purchases, like an automobile, maybe not even an automobile, but definitely like a, a, a mortgage for a home. At that point, the trade-off between security and privacy seems somewhat reasonable. This notion that like every financial transaction you make should go to some centralized database in the U.S. government to make sure that you're not a criminal, it sort of shows incredible bad faith as to the, the goodness of your average American and an incredible desire for power at a, at, a, at a high level that, of course, could be abused or hacked and then abused by the wrong people. So to go back to the tornado cash thing, just to so we're actually we're suing um, OFAC because of that tornado cash designation. And, you know, we're not we're not arguing that it's wrong to identify some loose group of people who develop tornado cash as potentially a sanctionable entity. We're not arguing that it's right either, but we're just saying, you know, we don't know the details of that. The only thing we're arguing, it's a very important but but very narrow point, is the smart contracts themselves, which are immutable and on the Ethereum blockchain, are just software tools. Like the developers, we know for a fact because of the way Ethereum operates, have no ability to change that software in the future, and they don't directly benefit in any way from its continued usage. And so if I, as an ordinary American, want to have privacy with respect to a payment to, say, my friend Naraj at Coin Center, another ordinary American, and I want to do it on Ethereum, I should be able to send money to that smart contract, and that smart contract sends money to, to Naraj. At no point is any sanctioned entity involved. It's just two Americans wanting to protect their privacy using a piece of software that exists on a blockchain. That software should not be considered property of a sanctioned entity if that entity has no control over it. And if it's just Americans using it for their own privacy, we have a real right to use that. And it's not something that the statute should preclude us from doing. So that's our lawsuit. We're, um, we're in the middle of appealing in the uh, 11th Circuit in, in Florida. Yeah, I think it's I think that's it's right. I don't think there's any there's no prohibition on privacy. That's not illegal. Privacy is not a crime. So I think it's a it's a principled argument. I think we're really we me and, and many others um, in our space are very grateful that you guys are doing 
that work. You know, just to add another example, you talk about you sending Niraj money for, you know, a tungsten cube or something like that, right? It's, it's um, Vitalik donated to uh, the, the Ukrainian side of the Ukraine conflict and did his donation through Tornado Cash because I think he wanted to contribute. But he said, you know, I don't necessarily need to, like, reveal everything about all of my other holdings just to do this donation. It's a totally reasonable use. One of our co-plaintiffs in our lawsuit, because so we're challenging as Coin Center, we're, we're one of the plaintiffs because we receive donations through Tornado Cash because some of our donors want to protect their privacy. They don't want to reveal to the whole world that they happen to support one or another civil advocacy organization. And they have a right to that privacy under the First Amendment. Because when the government starts asking for a list of, every, list of everybody who's in the NAACP in Alabama, we know why they're asking for that list, and it's not a good reason. And the Supreme Court actually articulated a constitutional right to anonymously donate to a civil advocacy organization back during the civil rights movement, and thank God they did. But our co-plaintiff, we have a co-plaintiff who's a John Doe, because they want to protect their privacy, who was organizing donations to support the defense of Ukraine uh, using Tornado Cash and Ethereum for the very real reason that lots of people like Vitalik, um, who have a fair amount of crypto, wanted to help in this crisis and knew that if there were on-chain transactions linking their, their public personas to these donations to support Ukraine, they will very likely end up the target of Russian intelligence, which is very active on these networks, trying to ferret people out and steal their money or do horrible things to their families potentially even. So like, it's a, it's a, this is not an academic point here. This is a very real point about the value of privacy, especially in digital money, where most of the time we have zero privacy. Now we have this great new technology that actually starts to allow us to have some amount of privacy over our, fi over our financial transactions online. And it's, it's sad that we have to fight for what seem to be sort of like fundamental American rights to just be able to protect our, our, our private business. Yeah, it feels like, to your point, you know, in the, in the Wild West, if we're like in Deadwood, which is one of my favorite, unfortunately, canceled HBO shows, you're paying with coins and cash. It's peer-to-peer. -peer, it's instant settlement, right? It's bilateral. And then, you know, the world becomes bigger and and more digital and you need more cash. Physical cash doesn't make as much sense. But we've lost this apparent – I mean, this is a core I – mean, the, the greenback, quote-unquote, right? I mean, the dollar is famous as a thing, as a physical thing, right? But we've allowed a, a true degrading. You take the the Bank Secrecy Act. What what is the the threshold to file a suspicious activity report with FinCEN is ten thousand dollars, right? Two thousand. So that that's because they just lowered it, though, right? Currency transaction reports are ten thousand. CDR, okay. SSRs are two thousand or five thousand, depending on whether you're Venmo or an MSB or a bank. They get a higher. Threshold. They just updated some of those, but let's you're yeah. right. Let's say the currency transaction report threshold was set at ten thousand. Yeah. What in the eighties <laughs> or something, right? Yeah, and was, with inflation, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So it was actually in twenty like twenty three equivalent dollars. We're talking. It was much more. It was not intended. And I'm joking with inflation. And if they don't update that CTR, like with inflation in like ten or. 50 years, you buy an iPhone and Apple's going to have to file a CTR, right? Because like they, they're not adjusting the threshold for inflation either. But to your point, they've also lowered the thresholds for many things. Isn't it like $600 on PayPal now or something crazy? Yeah, there might be a special rule about reporting for PayPal. I, I, I don't know. But they really are dramatically expanding the financial surveillance apparatus, right? And, and it's just if Americans need to realize that we – even in a digital world, like we may have had to centralize to get global payments or even, you know, cross-country payments because we didn't have a technology that would allow us to 
go about our business using the cash model that we, you know, loved in the U.S. But now we do have that, and we shouldn't allow them to redefine history, basically, as to one where we all have to transact through a bank that they can call on the phone. And to bring it back to the Warren Marshall bill, this is sort of extraordinary because this is not an example of just stricter rules for trusted third parties like banks. And this is not an example of, well, let's just apply the same rules that banks have to deal with to crypto corporations, which was, as you said, sort of the misleading conclusion you might draw from watching the hearing with Jamie Dimon testifying. This is, oh, we're alarmed that there aren't intermediaries in this new technology. And so we're going to create them. We're going to say, you're a miner, uh, you're a validator. All right, you, you say you're just relaying a bunch of data on the internet and you, you don't actually know any of these people. Now you need to know all of them. And, it, it, you know, to someone who doesn't understand that the technology that might seem reasonable, it just makes no sense, though, because that's not the, that's not the business of a validator. The business of the validator is just to say that the data that is being shared over this channel, over this protocol, is valid according to the rules of the protocol. You know, I'm just checking digital signatures and bundling things up in blocks. And this is how we can have a beautiful, permissionless, open ledger of financial transactions and all of the good that can come from this technology, especially with respect to, say, um, ensuring that freedom and liberty prevail in totalitarian regions of the world, where, of course, they don't want this technology to exist. But you can't stop it because there's this open, permissionless blockchain. So this is the first attempt to actually say, like, oh, we really don't actually like the idea that there's no big banks in the middle of this system. So we're going to create a law that forces there to become fully, like, trusted and sort of more traditional customer-facing entities at every end of the transaction. It's, it's forced re re-intermediation would be the way to think of it. Peter, before we break, I want to ask about Coin Center, and, and I should tell our audience that you can read Peter's great work on CoinCenter.org, um, and there's and not just his, but his whole teams. Um, they've they've you just got a great new hire who joined you guys, Landon, who's a, who I know, and um, and and just I love the team at Coin Center. They've been doing work in the space for a long time, and it's been great work. Peter, how can people get involved with Coin Center, or uh, you know what what do you guys what's exciting you for Coin Center next year? You know, like what are you guys up to? Yeah, thanks, Alex. I, I am excited that Landon's here. It's the first time we've hired a new employee in a long time. He was a great staffer on the Hill, both for Senator Toomey and before that for um, Representative Emmer in the House, both incredible champions of crypto as a technology in, in Congress. Um, and Landon is by far the best staffer I, I think I've ever met. Um, so we're excited that Coin, Coin Center is expanding. We're excited to do more work. We're excited for our lawsuits. We've got that lawsuit. We've got another lawsuit, 6050i, which is about tax reporting, also about surveillance. So that's like broker rules related stuff, right? Quote, unquote. We've got the broker rule comment, which we just submitted. We've got a lot going on. Um, all of it's very important. And to me, it's it's very interesting that this is trending much more in the direction of what are the issues surrounding financial privacy? Uh, and we're starting to get off of the securities versus commodities type discussions, which had, you know, were, were, were important, but this is sort of the meat of the game. Like if we're not allowed to have peer-to-peer -peer financial transactions that preserve some modicum of privacy in this country, then we've lost everything. And so um, thank you for asking. You, you, if you want to help our, our work, we're uh, at coincenter.org. You can find all of our resources there. You can also donate. We're a nonprofit. And so we rely on our, our very generous community of supporters uh, to continue operating. And uh, we appreciate your donations. Peter Van Valkenburg, Director of Research at Coin Center. Thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains, Peter. Thanks, Alex. It's been fun. 
That's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thanks to our guest, Peter Van Valkenburg, Director of Research at Coin Center, and Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. Everyone have a safe and happy weekend, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.